following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Morning, church. Good to see all of you. My name is Mark. I'm one of the elders here. And... Uh, All right, what happened to my screen? There we go. How are we today? Doing well? Good. Well, um, here we are, the last Sunday of Advent, the last Sunday before Christmas, and uh, we've been in this rather uh, unusual series from the book of Malachi, and so I invite you to turn there. Um, Pastor Brian asked me, um, you know, is this too much? You know, is this, you know, too heavy or whatever? I'm like, man, dude, this is the best Advent series I've ever heard, you know. So I've been, I've been really tracking with it and, and just enjoying it because um, I think because it's, it's a little bit different, you know, and it's not the typical Christmas message that maybe we've heard and seen uh, so many other times before, but yet it still touches on the coming of our, of our uh, Savior, uh, the Messiah. So if you'll turn to, in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. And if you're not sure where Malachi is, it's the last book of the Old Testament. So as Brian has said, if you find Matthew, turn left, and and there you are. Um, Malachi chapter 3, we're going to look at the the end of this book, starting at uh, verse 13. We'll go through the end of of chapter 4. So um, let me read the text, then I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be to God. Let's pray. 
Lord God, there are sometimes uh, some hard words for us in your Bible, and uh, hard words for us to hear, and uh, Lord, we just, we trust that you speak to us in the way that, that is meant for us, in the way that is, is the most helpful to us, in the way that uh, reveals yourself how you would like to be revealed. Lord, help us to see you as, as you have revealed yourself. Help us not to create any false images in our mind about who you are. And Lord, as we go into this text today, help us to see Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, these are Malachi's closing words. These are the closing words of the Old Testament. And, and I'm sure you caught that. It, it really kind of ends on a down note. With a de- decree of utter destruction. Some... Uh, some translations use the word curse as, as the last word. It kind of ends on a downer. But it's not the last word. The next word is going to come 400 and some years later as Jesus Christ enters the world to, to seek and to save that which is lost. Now these are hard words. For us to hear sometimes, but God has given them to us uh, to reveal himself. And so I want to kind of go through this in three sections today, and and we'll just kind of see where it goes. Uh, The first section, and for you note takers, this would be uh, point number one, and we call this wallowing in complaint. Wallowing in complaint, back at verse 13. Now, have you noticed... Throughout the book of Malachi, there have been numerous times where God gives an accusation to the people, and the people answer with a, with a question that begins with the word, how? How? So, let's just rehearse those. Um, it, it, it's, and, and if you read it with a, with a scoffing tone, sometimes, sometimes children will ask how or why, and they really don't want to know how. And they don't want to know why. They're just questioning, right? And this is the way the people are questioning God. It's, it's a scoffing tone. So um, let's, let's just review these. Uh, there have been six so far, believe it or not, all the way through the book of Malachi. Chapter 1, verse 2 begins with God saying, I have loved you. How have you loved us? Chapter 1, verse 6, you, you priests have despised my name. How have we despised your name? Chapter 1, verse 7. You offered polluted food in my altar. How have we polluted you? See, there's that scoffing. Chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him? 3, 7. Return to me and I will return to you. How shall we return? See, it's not a... okay. How do we return? Lord, we want to come back to you. It's like, we don't even believe we need to return. We don't need to repent. How? How do we repent? And then chapter 3, verse 8, you have robbed me. How have we robbed you? So there's just this undercurrent of denial that that they are in a state of, of just spiritual deadness and lethargy 
And, and they think they're doing fine. So we go to the, um, the passage today, and as we've looked at this week, uh, this month in, in looking at these, all of these questions, all of this talk back to God is, has sought to, to question his worthiness. So is he worthy of our honor? Is he worthy of faithfulness? Is he worthy of our trust? Those were the first three messages that we had uh, so far. And now we come to the seventh accusation, the seventh how, the seventh objection. And the question today is, is he worthy to follow? And I think this objection, this question is the summary of the entire group of, of accusations that, that God has laid and the objections that the people make. So let's look back again at verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping of his charge? Or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. They've spoken against God. And this, as I said, is, is like the summary. Their, their saying here is, is at the root of their problem, where they are saying, it's vain, it's pointless to serve God. For all those other objections, why were they questioning his love? Why were they offering cheap sacrifices? Why were they forsaking their spouses in divorce? Why were they holding back their tithe? Why were they refusing to return to God? It's because they saw it as all vanity. There's no point. God is not worthy to be followed wholeheartedly. Verse 14 says, uh, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? That word profit in the original language is, is actually comes from a word that means cut. And literally, we would say, what's my cut? What's my value in following the Lord? What do I get out of it? What is it? What's in it for me? There's no apparent temporal blessing or benefit to following God. Then they said, what is the prophet in walking as in mourning before the Lord? This is a reference to, to a repentant and a mournful attitude towards sin. And it, it's, it's part of the religious nature of, of worshiping God is that we walk in, in a state of repentance. Martin Luther, when he when he nailed his 95 theses on the, uh, the wall of the Wittenberg Chapel and triggered the Protestant Reformation some 500 years ago, the first of his statements was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. God is looking for 
not our service so much, not our sacrifices, not all these outward things. He's looking for a heart of repentance. And that doesn't mean we, we live in this constant state of guilt or, or just fear that we're constantly messing up or anything like that. But if we're, if we're truly honest with ourselves, and if our heart is soft toward God, then we, then we are always turning to Him in repentance. But these scoffers, they said, you know, what's the point of going around in mourning uh, before the Lord? Then they go on and say, we call the arrogant blessed. This is in verse uh, 15. The evildoers prosper. They don't get caught. They, they get away with testing God. Man, this, this is real whining, isn't it? You know, it's just like everybody else is doing well and, I'm, and here I am. This theme of the prosperity of the wicked shows up a number of times in the Old Testament. And in particular, um, you don't have to turn there, but Psalm 73 is, is one of those psalms that expresses this kind of thought about the, the prosperity of the wicked. But Psalm 73 is different than this complaint in, in Malachi. This complaint in Malachi is very, like I've said, very scoffing, very accusatory towards God. But in Psalm 73, we, we read this. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the wicked when I saw the prosperity of the arrogant. He goes on to say that these are the wicked. They are always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. So it's a similar lament. But here's where the turn is. The psalmist says, if I had... If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So the psalmist, unlike these scoffers, unlike these complainers in Malachi, he goes to the sanctuary. He goes to a posture of worship before God. He first begins by saying, God is truly good to Israel. And then he, he, in all this question that he has about the prosperity of the wicked, he finally goes into a, a, a posture of worship before God. And uh, he talks a little bit more here in, in Psalm 73 about their end, about how they will, they will finally reap destruction. And then he says, whom have I in heaven but you? There is none on earth that I desire beside you. And that's where he ends up. Instead of just falling into this sense of vanity, everything is, is vanity, he comes to the point of saying, who do I have but you, Lord? Because the alternatives are not good. The difference between the psalmist and these complainers in Malachi is, is a heart of worship and a heart of submission. Now, as we think about this complaint, it is vain to serve the Lord. 
If we are honest, and if you've been walking with Christ for any length of time, and if you're truly honest with yourself, I think we would all agree that we face this question sometimes more strongly than other times, but we've, we have to come to grips with this question. Is he worthy to follow? Is this life that I live for the Lord, is it worth doing? Likely some of you even today uh, listening to me are even considering whether or not to continue in the faith. And you're discouraged and you don't see the point. You don't see the value. We probably all have, have heard some of the various stories over the last few years of sometimes some prominent uh, Christians walking away from the faith. And they, they no longer identify as Christians. And we call that deconstructing their faith and, and so on. Um, and, and people have done this as I've, as I've read the documents and, and uh, you know, read some of their, their accounts and their story. Uh, sometimes it's, it's as a result of some philosophical questions that they just don't feel like make any sense anymore. And the Bible just doesn't make sense, doesn't have an answer for some of these questions. Sometimes it's, it's looking out over the, the Christian church and seeing the hypocrisy of believers and, and seeing uh, that we often don't live up to what we say we ought to. Uh, sometimes there has been in churches an abuse of power and people are hurt. And so they walk away from the faith and where they once said, yes, I believe in Jesus. Now they say, no, they don't. And they, they don't think it's, it's real anymore. I even have a, a friend and former co-worker that once followed Christ and now doesn't. And it's because of hurt that he experienced from another believer. Now, I will say this as an aside. I believe that any true believer in Christ, anyone who has truly been justified, set apart, adopted into the family of God, will never fully fall away from Christ. But God uses, God uses our experiences. God uses warning passages like this. God uses the example of believers who have remained steadfast. God uses warnings toward the people who don't remain steadfast to keep us persevering as he preserves us in the faith. But nevertheless, you may be here in this room and you may be wobbling a little bit in this faith. So let me say a few things about, about deconstructing your faith. I've been, I've grown up in the church since I was a baby. And I see Doug and Faith here and they're bringing their little guy to church and, and it's great. And, and that's what we want. I mean, that's what God is looking for, godly offspring, as we saw earlier in Malachi. This is, this is my story. And sometimes what I have experienced as Christianity has not always been the core of Christianity. Like, for example, I grew up in a, in a, in a setting where if you drank alcohol, you were going straight to hell. I mean, that was just the life that we have. And now I have a pastor who brews it in his basement. 
So obviously, if I'm going to, to live with that, and I do, um, I'm going to need to deconstruct what had been built into me as a child and, and come back to a more biblical understanding of what the true faith is and what the gospel is. So you may have some experiences in your life with people. You may have some experiences with church, and some of that needs to be deconstructed. So let me just say these things. It's healthy for us to ask honest questions. It's healthy to have, even to have doubts and some unanswered tension in, in your life. It's healthy to walk away from those elements that aren't essential to Christianity. Now, I was reading um, something from a, a pastor who had gone through uh, his own deconstruction and reconstruction of his faith. And here are some things he said if you're doing that, if you're going through this process. He says, do read the Bible. Don't withdraw from community. Do pray honest prayers. Don't let fear stop you. And do grieve for those things that, that you might lose. In the end, we come back to that question, whom have I in heaven but you? When a number of Jesus' disciples were leaving him, Jesus turned to his core group and said, will you leave me too? And Peter said, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of life. So as you think through your own faith journey and as you have questions and as you are asking that question, is he worthy to follow? Follow that with the question, who else is there to go to? Jesus has the words of life. And I would ask you today to think about this. Are you feeling the force of that question? Is he worthy to follow? And if you are, Stay with him. Stay with him. Pursue Jesus. Let go of some of the non-essentials, but pursue him. Okay, you with me? All right. Uh, let's go on to the next section here. And this is point number two, standing in community. Standing in community, verses 16 to 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. This begins with the phrase, those who feared the Lord... Now, there are seven times in the book of Malachi that speak of fearing the Lord, either as something to be pursued or as those who don't fear the Lord, something to be rejected. So this is a common theme here in the book of Malachi. Fear of the Lord is the essence of true religion in the Old Testament. The Proverbs say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It distinguishes the people of God from those who have no regard for who God is or, or what he requires. 
It's a reverential awe and adoration combined with the healthy reaction of a consciousness of his displeasure. The New Testament tells us that perfect love casts out fear, but there is still a fear of the Lord in the Christian's life. Thomas Watson uh, in the 1600s, writing on this very passage, said this, There is a difference between fearing God and being afraid of God. The godly fear, God, uh, the godly fear, okay, start that over. The godly fear God as a child does his father. The wicked are afraid of God as a prisoner is of the judge. So these are the ones who stand against the complainers. These are the God-fearers. They're the ones that have that reverence that they understand, just like the psalmist in Psalm 73. I go into the sanctuary of God and I come to the conclusion that I have no one in heaven but you. These God-fearers, in verse 16, they spoke with one another. In the face of this ungodly majority who are scoffing God, who say that following God is vain, the faithful few must stand together. And they spoke to one another. What did they say? Well, I think we have a clue here. They spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. Now that's the result. That's how God is responding to God-fearers. But couldn't also this be the substance of what they say? Hey, God is listening. God hears us. God moves. God acts. He gives regard to us. He will hear us and respond. They remind one another of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. This is the, the very necessary speaking to one another that we must do as fearers of God. We need to remind each other. And so when we face that question, is he worthy to follow, we tell one another, yes, he is. And when, when you're discouraged, someone else can pick you up. And when they're discouraged, you pick them up and we speak to one another. And thus we stand in community together. So it says a book of remembrance was written before him, before God, of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. What is this book of remembrance? Well, as we said early in this series on Malachi, Malachi is, is contemporary with Nehemiah. And many of the things that Malachi has been talking about, the, the intermarriage of, uh, with, with foreign uh, spouses, the, the ties, not bringing the ties to the temple, and, and things like that. Nehemiah is the historical account of that happening. Well, in Nehemiah chapter, chapters 9 and 10, there is a document that is generated where the people come together and they... They uh, acknowledge their sin and they renew the covenant. And they sign it and there are names listed in chapter, uh, in chapter 10 of Nehemiah. 
At the end of chapter 9, it says this, uh, because of all this, we make, this is, this is the, the verbiage of their covenant renewal. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now, most of the accusations here in Malachi are directed toward the priesthood and toward the Levites. And and so this book of remembrance that is produced with everybody's name, the name of those who fear the Lord and esteem God's name, is one of those kinds of documents of covenant renewal. Now, the question is, Should we sign a document? Should we come to a place, if we come to a place where we we understand, hey, I've been a little bit away from the Lord, I've been in disobedience in some areas, do I need to sign a document? Do I need to put my name on a book? Not really. We need to repent. But you know where your name needs to be enrolled? In our membership covenant. When you come together in the local church and say, I'm here, I'm, I'm covenanting with you, with the body of believers here, to, to join together and we will encourage one another. We will, I, I will be accountable to you. You will be accountable to me. I am making a stand today to stand with the Lord and his people. Now, I'm not saying that just so we can build the membership roles. That's, that's not the point. It's to get you into the kind of relationships and community that God works through. God has ordained to work through his people. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 and 20, uh, to 25 say this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Hold fast your confession. And let us consider how to stir up one another for love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, as we gather together in community, as we get together in our homes in community groups, as we gather here on Sundays, We ought to be about this sense of community and encouraging one another so that we will hold fast the confession of our faith. So when somebody in my community group shares that they might be losing their job, my prayer for them is not so much that they keep their job, or that they get a better job. My prayer is, don't lose your faith in this. Don't get discouraged. Don't give up on on the Lord because of this circumstance that's happening. If somebody comes down with a sickness and they just feel depressed and they, 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 they just wonder, is he worthy to keep following? I want to pray not just that they get better, but that they maintain their faith. They maintain their confession. And I consider how I might stir up the love and good works. God promises that these shall be mine, he says in in 
Malachi here. In the day when I make up my treasured possession. This is God's promise to us of his faithfulness toward us. And this section closes where he says, Once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. This is pointing ahead to what he's about to talk about in terms of the end and the judgment. There will come a time when those who are God's people and those who are not God's people, what what they call the arrogant here, right now we're all mixed together. And there comes a time when they will be separated and we will see the distinction. This is the... This was the, the role of the, um, the priests. In Ezekiel, it says, you shall teach the people the difference between the clean and the unclean and the, the acceptable and the non-acceptable. And this is what the priests were not doing in their sacrifices. You remember back in chapter 1, they were bringing, they were bringing blemished sacrifices to the, to the altar, and the priests were saying, okay, And the role of the priest was to distinguish between the holy and the unholy. And God is saying here, the time will come and you will see that distinction. What the priest did not do for you, I will do. So these are the people that are standing in community. So as we think about this, are you availing yourself of the community of believers and standing together with us. Are you joining in church? Are you engaging with people? After church, do we, do we just talk about this afternoon's football games or uh, the COVID situation or your holiday plans or things like that? Or are we trying to find ways that we can pray for one another and talk about how God is faithful and giving each other encouragement all the more as we see the day approaching because we want everyone to hold fast their confession of faith. Now we go on to, the, to chapter 4. This is our last section. And we'll call this righteousness in judgment. Righteousness in judgment. This is talking about the day of the Lord. This is going to be the end of the arrogant and the end of the God-fearers. Okay? He's going, to, he's going to tell us, okay, what's the end? That was the same thing that the psalmist did in Psalm 73. I considered their end, those, the wicked who are prospering. I got to thinking about what's their end? What's really their end? And the end is destruction. So verse 1 says, For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In the end, God has the last word. And the wicked stand stand in in, uh, danger of utter destruction. And that warning ought to be, ought to speak to us. 
as, as Christians, we need to know why warnings like that are in the Bible. And they're there to tell us the true reality of things. That at the end of all things, it is only those who are found hidden in Christ Jesus who will be protected on that day. Now, verse 2, we see the end of the God-fearers. He says, but for you who fear my name, there it is again, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Now, we just sang those words, right? Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. From the very beginning of, of the Christian church, and even before, but, but Justin in the, in the second, early second century attributed this son of righteousness to the Messiah. Now, the language here in the Old Testament is, is not immediately clear that this is messianic. However, in the book of Luke, when... Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, um, and Elizabeth becomes pregnant in her old age, and it's, it's John the Baptist. It's, it's, her baby will become John the Baptist. And when he is born, Zechariah speaks, and one of the things he says is that this, this baby will be a messenger, he will be a prophet, and he is going to, uh, he's going to speak of the Messiah. He's going to teach the people about the Messiah. And the word he uses, he says, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And so it's clear that Zechariah is alluding to this son of righteousness shall rise and pointing that towards the Messiah. But at its root... This does speak to, to the coming Messiah and his work. And think about this. The Messiah comes. He lives the perfect life that none of us can live. He dies a sinner's death, taking upon himself the penalty that we deserve, taking it in our place. He rises again as a sign that his sacrifice has been accepted by God the Father. His sacrifice is, um, has satisfied God's wrath. And this is the work of the Son of Righteousness. But there's more here. The day of the Lord, and this is something the Old Testament prophets did not see, the coming of the Messiah happens in two parts. There was the first coming, and then Jesus, as he, as he left, said, I will return in the same way you see me leave. And so the, the first coming was Jesus coming as a child and coming as the suffering servant to pay the penalty for our sins. The second coming will be coming as the judge and the rider on the white horse. These Old Testament prophets didn't see two comings. They just saw the day of the Lord. So as they look forward to this 
day of the Lord, there's still a part of it that is to come. The Son of Righteousness will rise. Now, in this, in this language, when we sang it in the hymn, we often spell it Son, S-O-N, Son of Righteousness, pointing to Jesus Christ. Here it's Son, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness. And it's just a, a literary device to say that the day of righteousness will dawn. And righteousness will be the, the key of, of the coming day. This is a promise for us as we look forward to the second coming. It's a day of righteousness. Now, as we live and move around today, as believers, we sometimes do things that are good, right? We tell the truth, we, uh, we help people out, we do various things. But all of that is still tainted to some degree by sin. So I want you to imagine with me a righteousness that is unpolluted with corruption. Can you imagine living, moving, breathing with no sense of guilt? You know that nagging guilt that you try to, you know, we, we speak the gospel to, to counter it, but we still always kind of have it, right? Can you imagine loving others without any remnant of hatred? Can you imagine giving selflessly without thinking of receiving in return? Can you imagine having private thoughts that are utterly untarnished by evil? We don't live in that reality today, but that is the day of righteousness when all of this will be redeemed. Can you imagine having no anxiety whatsoever of having to measure up to earn God's love? That is the day of righteousness. No wonder we will be leaping like calves from the stall, uh, as he says. You, you shall leap like calves. Um, you know, these stalls that calves are kept in are, are kind of small. And I mean, you can maybe have a party in there, but it's not going to be very much fun. But when you're released and you have freedom, whoo, let's jump around. Now, we're talking here about righteousness in judgment. There's a, there's a judgment there. In verse 4, he says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded. How are we to remember the law? Now, I'm, I don't think we want to, to go there and say, Okay, we're back to law keeping. I'm, I'm going to... Remember to just do and try harder. But I think what we're pointing to here is remember all that God has done. In this day, remember the law. Remember how I brought you up out of Egypt, how I saved you through the Red Sea, how I brought you through the wilderness and spoke to you on the mountain through Moses. And, and I wrote my words on tablets of stone and remember how I provided for you in the wilderness all those years and how I brought you into the land of promise and conquered the people around there. Remember all of that. In the same way, we think about 
remembering what God has done for us. Remember how he has spoken to us, how he has saved us. Remember his gospel. Remember his son. Remember your confession of faith. These are the things that we use to, to encourage one another. Now finally, there's a promise here in verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is now the second time where in, in the book of Malachi where God is promising a messenger. The first was in chapter 3, verse 1. And we've identified this as John the Baptist. I will send Elijah before my coming, um, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, John the Baptist, in his ministry, he came before the Messiah to prepare the way. He sounded a warning. He called people to repentance. He pointed to Jesus and said, I'm not the Messiah. There he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus identified John the Baptist as the Elijah who was to come. But the New Testament is kind of um, ambiguous on this. In John chapter 1, John is preaching, John the Baptist is preaching, and they ask him, are you the Messiah? And he says, no. Well, are you Elijah? And he says, no. Well, then are you the prophet? And he says, no. And I think John the Baptist coming, as, as his father Zechariah said, in the spirit and power of Elijah was not the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, I don't know what it's going to look like in the future, but remember, we have, a, we have two comings of the Messiah, so there's a, there's a messenger and a forerunner, I think, still to come. And I don't know what that looks like, because I don't know what... I, I haven't figured out prophecy yet, so... Maybe see me and, you know, I, I, think, I think when the Lord comes, I'll be like, okay, yeah, that's what I believed all along. <laughs> okay, so um, anyway, um, here's the point today. The greater point is this. We could, we could look at this and say, okay, Elijah, that's John the Baptist, and then we just ignore it. We don't think about what God is doing. But what God is doing there is he precedes judgment with mercy. He precedes any major act on his part with warnings and with preaching and with the message and with the invitation to come and join him. So in a sense, any messenger who comes to prepare the way of the Lord is doing so in the spirit of Elijah. I stand before you today in the spirit of Elijah. Now, I'm not the Elijah to come. When Brian preaches here every week, and preaches God's word for you, and prepares your heart to receive the Lord, he is preaching in the spirit of Elijah. We would be a foolish to ignore this. Now finally it says, he will, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. We need to be careful here not to take this as a blanket promise for familial closeness, but this was um, also attributed to John the Baptist in, in Luke chapter 1. And I think what we're saying here um, is that the gospel has 
implications not only for our vertical relationship with God, but our horizontal relationships with one another. And so I would ask, you know, are you letting the implications of the gospel spread out into those, those horizontal relationships? It's also saying here that, that this message is basically for everyone. It's for children, for fathers, for mothers, for the weak, the strong, the rich, the poor. Now this ends with kind of a downer note. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now there's, a, there's mercy there. It sounds like judgment. But there's mercy and it's in that word lest. There will be utter destruction and a curse. Unless you come to Christ, unless you come to faith in the Messiah, unless you believe the gospel. He comes to make, this, this ends with a curse. I think I said in some translation, the, the last word is curse. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So as Jesus comes to us as a babe to live, to die for us, to be raised for our justification. He removes the curse from us. As you hear this message of warning and the offer of mercy today, I call you today to come follow Jesus. If you are not yet, believe in him. Put your trust in him. Submit to him as your king and, and your Lord. He is worthy to follow. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your, your word to us today. And Lord, as we've said, these are hard words, and I pray that uh, your, your words would come through and we would see the mercy in them. Lord, we adore you, and I, and I, I pray for those who are hearing this today, hearing your gospel. I pray that you would speak to their hearts, you would open their hearts, to hear the message of forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ. May they come to faith today. May you do this work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.